Concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. Keep it in mind, keep it in mind. You mustn't be afraid to dream of the bigger, darling. Just us. The call went out. We aren't the only ones to answer, you know. You're shooting the bullet. You're catching it. Because it's all part of the plan. Are you watching closely? Hello, I'm Ben Brantlinger. And I'm Robert Denfeld. We're your hosts for Must Go Faster. And this is the Chris Nolan Chronicles Part 2. All right, so in this installment of the CNC, the Chris <laughs> Nolan Chronicles, um, as we count down to the upcoming release of Tenet, uh, Rob and I are going to look at some of the most important casting decisions that Nolan has made in his career. We're also going to talk about the the cash cow partnership between Nolan and Warner Brothers Studios. Oh, yeah. And we'll also review two more of his movies, um, those being the crime thriller Insomnia and the magic fuel drama the prestige the prestige so in case you missed uh, part one we set the stage by discussing nolan's early backstory his unique approach to storytelling and original ideas and reviewed his first two features um following and memento so check out part one if you haven't already yes (laughs) please do but let's get into part two here Given that Nolan really levels up his casting with these next two films we'll talk about in this episode, we wanted to start part two by talking about kind of just like the actors and performances role in the Nolan ecosystem, I would say. Over his career, he's definitely built a reputation um, as a director that actors want to work with. Mm -hmm. They want to be a part of his unique vision and these worlds he creates. Mm -hmm. You know, these actors, they'll (laughs) they'll know that There'll be minimal CGI, Uh, which I think they appreciate. Uh, They know if there's a way that something can be shot or a scene can actually be done in real life, no one's going to do that. Right. And I feel like actors appreciate those kinds of challenges. Like, Uh none of them want to be in a a mocap suit in front of a green screen. (laughs) Right. You know? And they're going to be captured Uh, on celluloid on film. mm, Celluloid. (laughs) Mm. We're, We're big celluloid. I can't even pronounce celluloid, but I'm, I'm an, I'm an advocate, you know? Sure. Um, and I think perhaps most importantly, you know, these actors, they want to be part of the cultural conversation that surrounds nearly every one of Nolan's movies upon release. Like mm-hmm. actors want to be a part of the Nolan event, the water cooler conversation that we talked about in, in part one, the social media chatter, uh-huh. just the overall, you know, pop culture phenomenon that typically occurs, uh, in the week's months years after these films are released and as his career has gone on i i expect or i sort of assume that most actors realize that they're working with an auteur that's going to be viewed his films are going to be viewed throughout history going forward you know they're they're movies that are widely viewed now but also i think will live in history and 
uh, be watched over time. So that's a, another important factor, I feel. Definitely. You know, so Cillian Murphy, who stars in Nolan's Batman Begins, Inception, Dunkirk, said, you know, of his experience working with Nolan, you know, he favors working in close coordination with his actors, avoid, avoiding using, uh, avoiding the use of a video village on set. Right. He creates this environment where it's just you uh, and the actors, uh-huh. uh, you know, there's cinematographer, and then Nolan just stands beside the camera with right. his little monitor, but he's watching it in real time. And I felt that that was pretty wild to think about when you consider, like, thinking that at times his productions can, I guess, feel very small and intimate. Mm-hmm. And then you consider just, like, the epic scale of Nolan's films. Right. I think that balance does come through in the final product as you're watching them. Yeah. As epic as Nolan films get, they do feel intimate and personal in a lot uh-huh. of times. And I uh-huh. think that's reflected on set, it sounds like, according yeah. to this quote from... And still focused on human stories, you know, despite their grandeur and massive set pieces that have been in his, you know, second half of his career. Um, they're still human dramas, you know, at the core. And I, I feel like some of these big actors are probably very drawn to roles like that, where they get to do both things, you know, be a part of a big film and a big set, but also have an intimate feel to them. Um, and I think his... His style as a director is birthed, and I've, you know, he's sort of stated this in various interviews that it comes from his early films as the uh, cinematographer and camera operator, as well as the director. You know, he he likes to direct with the camera, um, and even if he's not shooting the film, he still likes to be there. Um, you know, he's and, a micromanager. I want to say. <laughs> I mean, maybe a little bit, but I, I think he's very. That's, that's for the best. Yeah, I mean, in a good way. I, you know, yeah, that can that can be like uh, misconstrued as a negative in a lot of contexts, but I think in in this case, it's actually a positive because he just has this sense in his head of what what he needs to shoot. Um, doesn't overshoot necessarily. Uh, uh, doesn't do unnecessary coverage takes just for the sake of having it for the editing process you know it's um that can get a little tiresome for actors and what you said about video village i think is also key because i tend to think the closer the director can be to the actors and the camera the better Mm -hmm. i mean obviously it's not always easy to be up close with the actors if you're shooting a wide or there's a lot of action going on or a lot of you know extras or whatever um but i'm not really surprised to hear that uh nolan doesn't always have a proper video village set up um or at least he's not sitting at the video village um because i think it's pretty clear that he prefers to be up close um you know sort of floating around with the camera and looking at his little monitor in his hand to you know see what the camera is capturing and what's going on right in front of his eyes Um, And just feeling the performances, feeling the action of the shot and sort of the rhythm of what's being captured um, rather than being like a a member of the audience at Video Village. What exactly is Video Village? Obviously, I've heard the term before, but when I saw this quote, I was like, I don't know if I know exactly what that is. And it sounds like uh, you do. So I would describe Video Village as just essentially wherever the external monitor is hooked up, that's seeing what the camera is seeing. Um, you know, it's often wirelessly connected nowadays or, or hooked up via HDMI or BNC cable running directly to the camera into the back of the monitor. And there are these specialized monitors that are, you know, calibrated to show you, uh, you know, apply a LUT to footage or see what a color grade might look like in post-production in real time. 
And yeah, it just allows various departments to get an eye on the frame and, and see what their work is looking like in the camera. You know, so many people's work shows up in the frame. So like production design, costume design, hair and makeup, gaffing, gripping, just looking out, you know, script supervisor, checking for continuity errors, eye lines, mm -hmm. you know, crossing the 180 degree rule, just all these little things where... Uh, you know, you can check yourself and, and see, make sure that what's being captured is what you need for the edit and for the final product. So, yeah, and it can become, you know, if not managed properly, there can be some sort of extra people hanging around watching and it yeah. can become maybe a distraction or, you know, kind of a kind of loud or whatever. Yeah, a um, gaggle of yeah, people. Right, right, right. So Gary Oldman who of course stars as a uh, commissioner Gordon in the dark Knight trilogy. He praised Nolan for giving the actor space and uh, ability to find things in the scene and not mm. just giving direction for uh, director's sake. Mm -hmm. um, actor Kenneth uh, Brana, Brana, Brana. There you go. Uh, also recognized Nolan's ability to provide a harmonious work environment, comparing him with Danny Boyle and, and Robert Altman saying, quote, uh, these are not people who try to trick uh, or Hector people. They sort of strip away the chaos. Again, kind of crazy to think about when you consider just like how chaotic Nolan films can be at times right. on screen. Uh -huh. And also just sidebar as I was thinking about this. Have you ever noticed that Nolan is just like one of the all-time best dressed directors on set? Definitely. How can you not okay. notice? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sounds like this, this is one of the first things you think of. Yeah, the, the tweed jacket game is flawless. Right. I have to say, <laughs> he's got a great assortment of, of of vests, scarves, sweaters. I believe he drinks like Earl. He has a flask with him, but it's not uh -huh. like whiskey. It's like Earl Grey tea, which <laughs> sure. is like, I feel like you know a very a very British moment for him. Gotta um, keep yourself going on set. You know, most directors they look pretty disorderly uh -huh. uh, or unke unkempt <laughs> on set. Sort of like shorts. I look right now. Right. <laughs> sure. The, hey, no, the I'm baseball not, I'm not hat, the, the slightly longer hair than usual, the beard right. that's a little overgrown. Right. You know, I'm yeah, actually describing you, Rob. Um, <laughs> right. You know, Stanley Kubrick, the goat, love you, Stanley, but he right. usually looks like a disheveled scrub, like nursing Weathered. a nasty hangover when, yeah. uh, when he, he was on set. Nolan looks like a J. Crew model. So yeah. another way that he kind of you know, stands out and uh, wanted to, wanted to shout that out. He's an well enigma dressed. in that, in that realm. He, he yeah. never seems to look exhausted. You know, he always <laughs> yeah, seems to be like, uh, right. chipper and upbeat. And I think that, you know, translates to what exactly we're talking about. He seems like a fun guy to work for and, uh, you know, keeps the, keeps the mood kind of light and positive. Mm -hmm. I think you, you know, you put as much humor in as the tone of what you're doing will sustain and uh, you know we were always very fortunate to have Michael Caine you know along for the ride to, to drop you know the odd, the odd, the odd, odd good line, the odd funny line, the odd, uh, the odd bit of heart and also Morgan Freeman you know I mean, we had some wonderful actors in there but but those guys particularly they lent you know a degree of warmth to something that otherwise could be uh, too dark too cold. So we thought of a few acting highlights that I think help illustrate Nolan's history with certain actors and performances. This is by no means as a comprehensive list, but rather a snapshot. So, you know, I want to point out too that Nolan's main casting director is this guy, uh, John uh, Pat 
Papsidera, who has worked on all of Nolan's films except for following an Insomnia. But mm. speaking of Insomnia, which is a film we'll, we'll, we'll dive into here in a few, mm. you know, Nolan got to work with one of the most decorated actors in film history mm. uh, with Al, give me all you got, Pacino, <laughs> uh, who was cast as the lead detective in Insomnia. Michael Caine, I have to say, I'll, we'll put a pin in it because we'll get into our love for Michael Caine when we talk prestige later in this mm-hmm. ep. Um, I just need to shout out Michael Caine. He's been, you know, been in more Nolan films than any other actor on the planet, and they've created a very long-term relationship, and is mm. just a very stately fellow who sure. uh, kind of has the same role in every Nolan film, even though yeah. they're, like, vastly different, you know, time periods and storylines. Yeah. Like, it's kind of the same thing, but he, he does it well. And I've I'll, seen I've seen Nolan talk about his sort of uh, Michael Caine's professionalism that he oh. uh, that he brings to his performances and just his daily practical acting and and interpersonal skills on set yeah that old school mentality michael kane is not here for your bullshit uh, right dilly dallying on set (laughs) and i think also you know before we continue on with other actors that he works with often um i think the scripts and characters that are so layered in nolan films you know that that has to attract these actors the the opportunity to dive into a you know multi-dimensional uh story oftentimes but also uh a a layered just character and um getting a chance to try something or go to a, a place they've never gone as an actor that that type of thing has to attract some of these people yeah, I was going to say all of Nolan's protagonists or heroes have at least some shades of moral complexity. Yeah. You know, and along with his villains, like there's at least some slivers of rationale for mm-hmm. you can at least understand why mm-hmm. they're doing some of the things that they're doing. And now this isn't a new concept himself that Nolan invented, like complex villains and antiheroes have been, you know, in movies for decades. But I think Nolan's willingness to have these kinds of layered characterizations in blockbuster films Mm-hmm. the times that he makes it just adds a layer of depth you usually don't see in popcorn flicks and as you said i think just adds to that attraction that actors have that they want to work with it's like that best right. of both worlds it's like oh i can be in the one of the biggest movies of the year and play interest an interesting character yeah you know sign me up so i want to quickly mention the emergence of tom hardy and its inception which only has a small amount of screen time but every second he's on screen he just lights up Mm-hmm. the camera with cool charisma no, it's not just about depth you know you need the simplest version of the idea in order for it to grow naturally in your subject's mind and it's a very subtle art so what is this idea that you need to plan he had been in other films prior to this tom hardy but this was the first time i had seen him in a film you know back in summer of 2010 mm-hmm. um this also of course kick-started the oh he should be the next james bond discourse right which and- is still going on <laughs> Yeah, which will basically continue for eternity. But right. he, you know, he of course masks up in uh, memorable performances uh, as you know as Bane in The Dark Knight Rises. Can't wait um, to talk about that. Yeah, right. The fighter pilot in Dunkirk. You know, don't um, worry, we'll go in on Bane um, yes. in a later episode. But I think also staying on Inception quickly, I think it's telling that you know Leonardo DiCaprio wanted to work with Nolan here. Mm-hmm. You know, Leo was in the middle of this like ten year run where he works with. Spielberg and Catch Me If You Can, Scorsese and Aviator, Departed and Shutter Island, Ridley Scott, Body of Lies, Sam Mendes, Revolutionary Road, Clint Eastwood, J. J. Edgar, 
Tarantino and Django, like the fact that Nolan chose to work with Nolan, that, sorry, that Leo chose to work with Nolan during the stretch of his career shows just how high Nolan mm. stock became. Um, Definitely. So I think that, that that was notable. And then one last thing on Inception. I, I do love the performance, Marion Cotillard as Mal. Cotillard, yeah. Cotillard, incredibly sinister. I don't know where she's been. Like I looked at her IMDb. She was last uh, the voice of Tutu in Doolittle. So hmm. I think she needs to... Uh, get back into some more serious films because I, uh, I think she's an outstanding actor and um, me too. amazing amazing in Inception I agree um, maybe my favorite performance we'll get we're getting ahead of yeah, ourselves yeah we'll get but, right right yeah. sure yeah we're just doing like quick little quick little hits on some of these performances but I want to say too he got the best out of Anne Hathaway as uh, Catwoman slash Selena Kyle in The Dark Knight Rises mm-hmm. you know at first when I heard that casting I just had trouble seeing how it could work but like the very first scene in that film with her, I was like, oh, she's she's perfect. This is so different. So I thought that was... Yeah. Yeah. Look, you wouldn't beat up a woman any more than I would beat up a cripple. Of course, sometimes exceptions have to be made. I have to mention quickly the uh, reconnaissance that <laughs> sure. Nolan brought to New Heights by casting Matthew McConaughey as the lead in Interstellar. That uh, man, that, what a what a time to be alive! I'm not sure we can really credit Nolan there for the reconnaissance, but it was uh, a part he was of a sort of toward the tail end of the the sans. It was kind of like <laughs> the climax. Yeah, I know True sure. Detective, and he, right. you know, uh, he won the Oscar. Dallas Buyers Club, Dallas yeah, Buyers Club, the, right? The cameo in Wolf of Wall Street, but I yeah. think that was like the the crescendo, yeah, the climax of it, you know. Uh-huh. And then, uh, yeah, McConaughey, yeah, it's kind of been hasn't really been doing much since. I mean. I guess he has. I I, I got to fact check that. But, yeah, yeah. Um, He's out there. I feel like, yeah. He even, you know, Nolan got the interest of a boy band leader in Harry Styles when he got the role in Dunkirk. Right. And apparently Nolan had no idea how famous Styles was. <laughs> uh, you know, shocking that Nolan wasn't a member of the One Direction Hive. Right. But uh, that was, it was pretty interesting that he was able to get someone like that in one of his yeah. films. And then lastly, like, you know, I have to mention Heath Ledger as the Joker uh-huh. of, you know, we're going to do Dark Knight next episode. I can't wait. But it's just simply one of the most iconic performances of the last 30 years. Yeah. One of the great villain performances in film history. He, of course, won the Oscar posthumously um, and became the benchmark for how movie villain performances, particularly in comic book adaptations, like had been judged against since. Um, so, I, yeah, we can't run through some Nolan performance highlights without mentioning the late, great Heath Ledger. For sure. <clears throat> You know, we obviously we'll talk about Christian Bale a lot during the Prestige and yes. you know Batman Begins and the entire Dark Knight trilogy, obviously. So, but at the height of his powers to attract Christian Bale for Batman Begins as the the Batman character, which originally was just Batman Begins. They weren't necessarily planning to make the trilogy the onset, but mm-hmm. and then even going back to you know his first studio feature film, even though it was pretty independent, Guy Pierce, Carrie Ann Moss, and Joe Pantoliano that we talked yeah. about last week and or for Memento, um, that's you know those are three huge actors, two of them coming off The Matrix, which was the biggest movie in the world at the time. Guy Pierce is you know a big name, and just to attract those three actors based on the strength of a script. Right. Tells a lot about what actors are looking for. And then, you know, of course, you have the upcoming Tenet stars Robert Pattinson, which will be the return for him, like to the blockbuster format since the, the Twilight saga. Sure. You know, and I think this performance 
could be used to like recalibrate audience expectations that he can be a leading man in a big budget film. Uh-huh. Pattinson is of course doing, will be doing that in 2021's The Batman. Uh-huh. Um, and Tenet also of course stars John David Washington, right. who's coming through, you know, off his breakthrough and Spike Lee's uh, Black Klansman. Mm-hmm. Can't wait to see him in that role. Me too. To do what I do, I need some idea of the threat we face. Elizabeth uh, DeBecky, who uh-huh. was really good in the criminally underrated Widows, which I know yes. we both really liked. Yeah, um, so excited to see her her in that role as well. But me too. Let's um before getting into Insomnia, we just wanted to hit yeah. on this this relationship that Nolan has with with Warner Brothers Studios. So. Mm-hmm. Memento in his feature debut following uh, the only only Nolan films that weren't financed by Warner Brothers. So that would be nine films, including Tenet, that mm-hmm. Warner Brothers has been the studio behind. Basically, like Nolan is Warner's golden goose and, and they're his sugar daddy. Um, <laughs> they they give Nolan the money and the creative freedom to do exactly what he wants, the autonomy yes, to hire that's the whoever key. he wants. Right. Yeah. And he gets final cut. In return, Nolan delivers the studio a box office hit. It's yeah. a win win all around. Like just imagine a relationship where you're just given hundreds of millions of dollars to just go out and make the thing that you love. Like right. that is that is uh, utopia right there. Across these eight films, um, no one is made with Warner Brothers, not including Tenet since it's not out yet, but they've grossed over $4.7 billion, so um, have been a success. And I just think there's like a level of trust that's been built up over the last 15 years between Nolan and Warner Brothers that will most likely just continue for the rest of his career. Unless like the bottom completely falls out, Nolan has like four straight flops in a row and yeah i, I don't know he becomes like making like small like <laughs> i doubt that. indie projects but right it, yeah and, well, and I, for a little bit of context just on the global box office thing the prestige was the last nolan film that didn't gross over 200 million dollars at the box mm. office so yeah i mean that's just he's flop. he's on that's a a f- nice... considered a flop if it's not uh over 200 million <laughs> yeah he's on a nice nolan. run since 2006 <laughs> You know, Quentin Tarantino had this quote in the the Dunkirk episode of Rewatchables, which is an absolute must-listen for any film fan, Tarantino fan, Nolan fan. Listen to that episode if you haven't. Being a great filmmaker and uh, dealing with a big subject and brought Warner Brothers along with him Mm -hmm. in the exact way Stanley Kubrick would have done, Mm -hmm. bringing Warner Brothers along with him. And they backed him 100%. So I also think it's like a partnership that reminds me of like, you know, Steven Spielberg and, and Universal that they had throughout the decade. So I think that's like an easy comparison to make. And mm-hmm. I'm sure the studio also loves just like the consistent speed Nolan has made his movies. Um, it's something that kind of just struck me as we were preparing for this series. Every two or three years since he started making them, you know, starting with 1998 and following, he's never taken a break of more than three years, which I feel like is is rare for a director of his stature. And you could definitely afford, you could take you know, 12 years off, whatever, like nothing's going to change. But this is a guy basically every three years is putting out a massive new film. Right. And not just the speed of, you know, the time between films. Also, he's, he's known as coming in under time and under budget on the actual production process. Um, right, yeah. Apparently he returns some of the production uh, budget for the Dark Knight Inception, the Dark Knight Rises, and Interstellar. He gave Warner Brothers <laughs> money back before the film even came out. And uh, Emma Thomas, what a, what a mensch. right? Emma Thomas, his his uh, wife and you know working partner and producer, has stated that he doesn't want to give 
the studio an excuse to come in and you know sort of take control of the film as as so often happens right. with it's his worst nightmare yeah i mean he just wants to not give them an excuse to tamper with his work and uh you know for such a sort of control obsessive director it, that is that is obviously critical so i know he also has a uh, syncope right correct um yeah which is his own like production house that he basically uses you know to help finance the films or like what exactly is, is syncope's role in in the, the process yeah syncope films inc uh started by christopher nolan and emma thomas in 2001 it's a production company and um, it's a really, I don't really know that much about their role in the process yeah. of these films. Um, I just know seeing the logo yeah. right before the Warner Brothers logo before every Nolan film, you know? Yeah. The very famous logo, it's, uh, you know, recognizable. It's, it's black and white letters, syncope on top mm-hmm. of like this black and white maze, like any, any Nolan very film. Inception like. Yeah. Anybody yeah. listening to this podcast knows right. the logo. Um, the the name syncope derives from syncope, the medical term for fainting or loss of consciousness. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so apparently the the name is a reference to a dream state. The audience is asked. I'm I'm reading from Wikipedia here, by the way. So uh, no worries. The audience is asked to be creative, to wonder at possibilities, to formulate their own opinions as to the meaning of the films. So that's a quote from uh, Joseph Bevan of Sight and Sound. Um, so, I mean, that obviously ties into all of the themes of Christopher Nolan films and where the name derives from. But yeah, it's a production company that the two own. Apparently, I mean, their office is in Los Angeles. The company itself only employs four people, two of them being Chris Nolan and Emma Thomas. So yeah, if you're looking to get an internship at Syncope or, you know, get your uh, foot in the door, like maybe, maybe try for a larger uh, entity. I mean, I think it's mostly in a meeting space and just a way to sort of like solidify his office, you know, and uh, just have a place where he kind of calls his working comfort zone and, you know, a, a brick and mortar for the mind (laughs) Mm, i like that all right so let's segue into the first film nolan made with warner brothers and that is 2002's insomnia i have great respect for your profession but the situation isn't yours to control will you're trying to impress me finch you had the wrong guy Ah! it took you 10 minutes to beat kate connell to death no evidence that i killed kate you only know it because i told you are you doing okay? I mean, you haven't been sleeping much, Detective Dormer. So, where we left off in part one, Nolan was riding the wave of Memento's success, which led him to direct Insomnia. Quick backstory on how Nolan became the director. So, Steven Soderbergh was the film's producer and handpicked Nolan to direct. In part one of uh, the Chris Nolan Chronicles, we mentioned the role Soderbergh played in helping Memento get released. Well, here, he gave Nolan his next opportunity to direct Insomnia was released er in the early summer blockbuster season, uh, May 2002. It made $113 million at the box office on a budget of $46 million. So, you know, with Memento and here Insomnia, Nolan already establishing himself to be a pretty big box office success that studios can rely on to turn a profit. Insomnia, based on a much darker Norwegian film from 1997, Rob, which I know you you watched. Yes. I did not. Uh I saw a few of the differences that 
the Norwegian film had versus the U.S. Like uh-huh. some very twisted differences yeah. that it was like God, some this darker is like things. A, uh, yeah, the dog, yeah. the dog uh, dynamic is a little bit different. Not very favorable to that lead character, who's played by Stellan yeah. Skarsgård, by the way, who gives okay, an incredible that. performance in the Al Pacino character's role. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's a like you said, it's a Norwegian production, and this is a remake. You know, so this it's based on a a previous film with a previous director and it's the only film in Christopher Nolan's uh career that is a remake we're going to talk about the prestige next but that is that is an adaptation of a novel this is a remake of an original film so it is it does kind of stand alone in that regard and we'll talk about some of the pitfalls that I think it falls into because of that yeah um so I highly recommend it to a people it's actually a number 47 in the criterion collection Ooh. uh the original so it is uh me at criterion yeah it is a uh you know widely acclaimed film and it's in its own right so to go to the nolan version so just the plot setup is two um los angeles homicide detectives are dispatched to the alaskan town of Nightmute, mm-hmm. a place where the sun doesn't set mm. to investigate the methodical murder of a local teen. Just want to say, Nightmute apparently is an actual place in Alaska. Like, mm-hmm. imagine being born in Nightmute. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if you grew up in Nightmute, Nightmute <laughs> like, chances are you maybe got some screws loose. Like, uh-huh. sorry to any our night. I know we have a pretty big Nightmute uh, yeah, population <laughs> that listens to us, but. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, let's go faster. Huge in night mute. We love Alaska, um, right? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this is my first time seeing seeing this film. Um, following Insomnia were the only two Nolan films of his before doing this that I hadn't seen. Mm-hmm. You know, Rob, as we were prepping for this episode, mm. you, you texted me early, like your time. Like I want to say it was like seven a.m. your time, right? With just like quote insomnia is bad straight up um <laughs> now i don't know if you maybe you were just like got up, woke up on the wrong side of the pillow you know and we we can hatch this out uh-huh. um you know let's get into it of like kind of your overall feelings on the nolan version of insomnia like do you still feel that way were you just being extra harsh yeah um what are your what, what are your what are your thoughts on on insomnia well okay <laughs> to say it's a bad movie is unfair I, sure. It yeah, to yeah. me, Insomnia is Christopher Nolan's weakest film. Mm, I could. Do you agree with that? Maybe. I, I I could I could buy that. Okay. So I think it's interesting to note too that this was Nolan's last R-rated film. Mm. Um, all his films since then have been he's directed have been PG thirteen. Like personally, I would love to see him take a dip back into the R-rated world. It just mm-hmm. seems unlikely given the path that he's on and the fact that you know every movie finance is a bigger financial success than the next one. And right. like, you know, talking about his relationship with Warner, like there might be some friction if he's like for my next film, I want to, you know, I want to do like an R rated, like weird horror film. But I think mm-hmm. it would be really cool to see him do that at some point in his career. Sure. Um, I agree. I think with insomnia, like one of my biggest takeaways, as we kind of mentioned in the beginning of the episode, like he goes up a notch in his casting. So like mm-hmm. in four years, he goes from casting his, his boys, his friends and following to working with three Academy Award winners and Al Pacino, Robin Williams, who I don't think we've mentioned yet, and Hilary Swank. Mm-hmm. Al Pacino, I think this is a really, I mean, you know, Pacino's good in pretty much everything. An overlooked performance in a very prolific career, obviously. It's mm-hmm. it's a rather subdued 
Pacino performance, <laughs> considering like what were you know what you measured it against. Although it still it has, still has the tropes, yeah. yeah, it has yeah, yeah, the, the trademarks yeah, yeah. and the, the I, lots yeah. of fucks and you know like right. they. I think they added fucks into the script just so they could hear right. Al Pacino. Pacino is like cuss. Chris, like no one, no one fucks. says fucking like Al Pacino, and it, you know like. <laughs> He's just, that's that's yeah, yeah. his greatest word. You're about as mysterious to me as a block toilet is to a fucking plumber. Reasons for doing what you did. Who gives a fuck? So, also, I said Chris Nolan has a part in, in the writing process of all of his films, but this film in particular is probably the least influenced by Nolan, the script itself. Um, you know, it's written by Hilary Seitz, a, another writer, and Nolan, you know, definitely worked with her on drafts, but he doesn't have a writing credit on this film. So that's, I think, pretty significant. Mm. So I think with Pacino, too, one thing I wanted to point out there, too, like the guilt and regret of Pacino's character, like it is kind of that reoccurring theme of complex heroes and Nolan movies that we kind of touched on earlier. So I think it is it is a layered characterization, which I think is a, you know, a positive aspect of the film. Robin Williams plays Walter Finch, the the calm killer. He like talks like your neighbor. He's got this certain, you know, disarming quality to him that's that's quite chilling. Uh this is one of the only two thrillers that Williams ever was cast in. And hmm. the other one actually came out in the same year. It's one of your favorites, Rob, one hour photo. Oh, yes. Underrated in that you want to talk about a creepy film. I, I remember was gonna we watched mention one that hour later. photo. Yeah. You have one hour photo on DVD, don't you? Yes. That's yeah, a yeah, great right. I mean, you that should. is a dark film, but really, <laughs> yeah. really amazing dramatic performance by Robin Williams. And I think kind of overshadows his performance in this film, which we can get to. So Williams, he was actually in the running to play the Joker in the Dark Knight, which actually mm. I, I could I could see. Um, I think this performance in Insomnia gives me some. Uh, That'd be fascinating. You know, I know I know we can't speak his name anymore because he's a terrible person, but Kevin Spacey in Seven vibes with uh-huh. just like his overall demeanor. Man, I was reminded of, and I think like that duality between Pacino and Williams' character, like as uh-huh. I was watching, feeling that dynamic between the two was similar to I think. The relationship of the Batman and Joker um, in the Dark Knight with Finch trying to like bring Pacino's character down to his level, like lure him into making him feel like, hey, we have more in common than not. We're not so different, are we? That kind of thing is a key aspect in uh, Batman and Joker's relationship in the Mm. Dark Knight, which, you know, he makes just a few years later. Mm. Why didn't you come forward with this information when she died? She swore me to secrecy. She didn't want anybody to know about that. Even when she was dead, she didn't want anyone to know. Beaten to death? I was honoring her wishes. A body dumped on a pile of garbage? I was her friend. You weren't her friend. All right, acquaintance, all right? We were close, and I was just... Mm -hmm. She was uh, attractive. Hilary Swank, she's in a supporting role, but like this is in between her two Oscar wins for Boys Don't Cry and Million Dollar Baby, so again, getting her at kind of like the apex of her career. Yeah. My, I think my favorite aspect of Insomnia is the use of 24-7 Daylight. Yeah, you know, using the the night mute, uh, which yeah, again, a real place. Apparently, this is how it goes down. You know, in parts of the year, reminded me, of course, of like you know, Midsommar, which I know uh-huh. Rob you you loved. Yeah, and just like the, it's a striking contrast 
with like the shadowy, dark, tinted cinematography that's used in, you know, the prestige, which we'll talk about next, or the Uh dark knight, like that you really associate with Nolan. The whole thing is just shot in in pitch daylight. And that continuous daylight factor is disorienting. Like I think both for the viewers and the characters. Um, and I think Nolan takes a big step forward here with the type of world building that he's become Mm -hmm. known for using that Alaskan backdrop and constant daylight to induce, uh, atmosphere and yeah. hones in on how it increasingly takes a toll on Pacino's character, mm-hmm. how it affects his psyche, his vision, his senses, mm. makes effective use of other Alaskan scenery, the waterfalls, the vast landscapes of mountains, the mm-hmm. tree logs, the the float homes. Apparently they're called float homes. Right. They're homes that, that float. That float. Um, <laughs> yeah. And zero CGI too, to build this world. Like yeah. uses the natural elements, old fashioned, again, trademark and Nolan. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you, Rob. Would mm-hmm. you rather live in 24 seven daylight or 24 seven darkness? Oh, <laughs> definitely daylight. Even though I, I am. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It yeah, seems that's easy. an interesting I, yeah. question because I am a night owl. I, I sort of yeah. consider myself, you know, a night owl and a night person. I don't love waking up early. Never have probably never will. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but I just think you can control light so much more than create light. Uh, so <laughs> that's deep. Yeah, uh, I might yeah, actually go, go with, with darkness. Light. I don't know. I don't sure. know. If I'm trying to be a contrarian, but like I could, I could hang with some twenty four seven darkness for. Uh-huh. I could do like a month in darkness. I don't know. We'll see. And I well, um, getting back to that element, just the you know twenty four yeah. hour daylight thing. It's and this the tone of this film is is a noir um, in most mm-hmm. ways and. It is this sort of like modern in color rather than black and white, brightly lit noir. Um, and, you know, it has a lot of those classic noir crime thriller tropes in terms of the subject matter and and the way it's shot in, in many respects. Um, I did read online. This is sort of like a, I don't know if it's true Internet thing. Uh, apparently Night Mute. There's stuff on the Internet has... where you're on. I'm not sure if it's true. It sounds <laughs> yeah. rare for the Internet. I've heard that. I've read that. Um, no, uh, apparently Nightmute doesn't have any part of the year where there is 24 hours of daylight. It's a bit of like okay. a, a stretch to make it work. Like there are at least a few hours of darkness. But in the original, I hate to keep going back to the original, <laughs> and I am going to. Um, there is a part of Norway where there is 24-hour daylight. And I think that's handled better in the original. And I think it's almost like a uh, just sort of like have to go with that for this remake because that was such a critical element of the original. Sure. Um, I don't think it works as well and maybe wasn't even necessary. Like maybe the, the detective just has insomnia and can't sleep because he's so troubled by the case mm-hmm. and you know, the, the pressure is weighing on him. I don't know. That's, that's just a, a hot take. I just feel like the insomnia daylight element of this remake was not as, you know, well executed. Well, so a few moments, trademarks I wanted to hit on before we can get out some awards and then, yeah. and then move on to the prestige. So I did like the like the sweeping helicopter shots in the opening scene of the plane, you know, them arriving in Alaska. Uh-huh. Almost felt like it was an homage to The Shining. Kubrick, sure. of course, was a huge influence of, of Nolan's. Um, instantly gives the viewer a, a feeling of isolation, you know, uh-huh. right from right from the bat. There's, of course... And Shades know, of Batman begins with that blue... Mm. glacial ice that is such a huge mm. element of batman begins which is his Hashtag next film blue glacial ice <laughs> so uh the technique of quick cuts to past events cross-cutting we uh-huh. we talked a lot about cross-cutting in part one 
Nolan's used that frequently throughout his career. Uh, it continues here. Um, the scene of Pacino chasing Robin Williams' character running on top of like those tree logs. Um, I, I kind of had this like thought it was like Robin Williams, like using like home field advantage, like terrain that he's used to in order sure. to kind of like evade him, which I thought was like a nice touch. And then uh-huh. in that scene, when Pacino falls underwater in his drowning, like I got some Dunkirk vibes from mm. the drowning scene in, in Dunkirk. I, uh-huh. you know, um, and you might hear about that. scene. I think William, you know, <laughs> Later. Uh, Robin Williams character, the hand to hand combat in that final scene the way that Robin Williams, this character, is like arms are swinging down and attacking him in like mm. hand-to-hand combat. It reminded me of The Dark Knight, uh, of course, and in, in, in the final battle scene between Batman and Joker. Mm. Like I've seen Dark Knight 400 times, so this is something <laughs> I thought of. But like the way he's kind of swinging down on him. Uh-huh. When you rewatch Dark Knight, like think of this. Like I think yeah, it is, yeah. it's a very similar framing okay. and motion and like speed. It, it, it reminded me of there and. I also want to know, because we talked a lot about in uh, following, especially in part mm-hmm. one, the the trademark use of, of, of score and music mm-hmm. and that propulsing score like that, which is in following and in a lot of Nolan's films, but absent here. Like this is a string heavy score, kind of like classical. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's a departure from the type of score that he's become become known for. And I will um, say this was, you know, shot cinematographer was Wally Pfister again, music mm-hmm score done by david julian again a college friend yeah, definitely from, not han zimmer yeah not from a, ucl yeah. not quite yeah. yet and editing also done by Dottie dorn uh who who also edited memento which is considered like one of the best edited films of all time um production design here nathan crowley who he's gone on to work with for all of his films after i believe maybe maybe with the exception of one that I'm forgetting. Um, yeah, you mentioned Steven Soderbergh and and also George Clooney were executive producers on this film. And, oh, and apparently Soderbergh had a big hand in sort of uh, solidifying uh, Nolan's relationship with Warner Brothers and, and gave him a lot of advice as to how to handle working with a large studio and how to communicate with that level of, uh, you know, not oversight per se, but just having people kind of providing you the the money and the resources and how to how to deal with that um because he came from such an independent background so yeah i thought i would mention that one thing i before we get to the awards i just have to read something to you ben um you have to and to the people yeah right um so referring to robin williams's performance in this film and also the same year you mentioned his performance as the very creepy character in one hour photo um, a quote from page 159, a footnote of Shea Serrano's 2019 book, Movies and Other Things. Yes. So here's, here's the footnote quote. I still remember watching the trailer for Insomnia the first time in a movie theater. I had to that point in my life only known Robin Williams as a sweetheart and good guy actor. When they showed him in the trailer, right as they're revealing he's a killer, I very loudly said to my girlfriend who became my wife, holy fucking shit. <laughs> very eloquent i think that's uh, a, but, a great you know, way to like look at robin williams sent. yeah <laughs> so let's let's hand out our awards here and then we'll get into the prestige so best moment of insomnia rob what do you what do you got so you just talked about it a little bit i'm going with the mm. scene 
when Al Pacino, Will Dormer's character, is chasing Robin Williams' character, Walter, across the logs floating along that waterway in the big clusters. First of all, it taught me how that was done. How, like, the logging, <laughs> I found that pretty interesting, you know, just like, a huh, so, so that's how they do that, huh? You know, they, right, they right, float right, these right, big right. logs down the waterway and, and they Alaska. stash them on trucks. Crazy place. Yeah, um, so that was fun to see. Um, you mentioned Seven and Kevin Spacey earlier. It reminds me so much, this chase scene, uh, which came out seven years before this film, when Brad Pitt is chasing Kevin Spacey starting in his apartment building hallway yes. down that hallway and then out into various buildings there's some of the framing the and elusiveness of yeah. him like darting and you only see hallways. him from behind yeah, yeah. and at this point in yeah, the film yeah. you haven't really seen robin williams's face yeah. it's it's like the exact same scenario almost and i yeah. feel some of the way you only see his like he's like jumping over a wall and you're you're trying to like see his face from the side trying to figure out what's going on it's it really really harkened back to that scene for me and you know just entertaining to see 61 year old al pacino running after 50 year old robin williams in this in- intense chase scenes yeah i mean they they handled it pretty well with camera tricks and doubles and stuff and quick cuts, that was cgi but... actually al pacino's like like huffing and puffing <laughs> right. really going after it yeah. so that was that was entertaining but also the way the shots of al pacino trapped under the logs and searching for a way out really it was it felt like it was he was underwater for like three minutes but i actually timed it it's only 40 seconds underwater yeah But it was just a really effective drowning sensation feeling, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, that feeling I'm talking about, like when you're under a raft or something and you think you're yeah. about to we get up to the drowned. Yeah, you, you're right. about to get up to the surface, but like your head yeah. pokes on something. You're like, well, I got yeah. I got to get right, up right, right now. So um, and it's also a scene that's much different than the way they did this in the original film. So for for all of those reasons, I that's my best moment. So mine is. The scene, it's another chase scene of, of Pacino and Ron Williams earlier in the film, though, um, when Pacino is in kind of the sewer in mm. his like layer chasing down Ron, Robin Williams characters, like definitely got some, again, I'm keep making like the Dark Knight trilogy references, but sure. like definite Batcave vibes, the foggy oh, yeah. atmosphere, uh-huh. the tension, the whole sequence is just like really well staged and executed, classic Nolan so that is my best moment. Mm-hmm. Best performance, I imagine we'll probably have the same. I have Robin Williams. Mm. I just think um, he's uh, super effective as the creepy, again, yeah, like neighbor next door, like mm-hmm. kind of charming, yet like this guy could, you know, um, is a, could be a cannibal type of vibe, yeah, you know? Yeah. Like it, 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 so Robin Williams is my best performance in Insomnia. What's yours? So it's going to be Stellan Skarsgård from the the Norwegian. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> that would be my answer if I were given The absolute that. disrespect. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, so, yeah, Robin Williams is a good choice. I think his performance is strong here, but I felt like it wasn't quite there for me, and I wanted more out of that performance. So in a curveball, I'm going to go with the third billing here and say Hilary Swank as Ellie Burr. Mm. I found this out on the beach. What is it? Shell casing, 9mm. The murder weapon was a 38, and none of his carries a 9mm duty weapon. Or backup weapon, right? 
Come on. Get a hobby, would you? Oh, shit. <laughs> what? It's a legitimate point, isn't it, Detective Dormer? At first, I was a little, like, bored by her performance and her character, but by the end of the film, I... I felt like she was the only one actually, like, investigating the case, <laughs> which is weird, and, like, trying to actually, like, make sense yeah, of what yeah. the hell Al Pacino is doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Pacino just, like, goes off on his own. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, like, on his own mission. journey. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's trying to, you know, it, we don't need to get into, like, too much of the plot, but, like, yeah. he's trying to hide his cover-up and he's being like internal affairs down in LA is investigating this other <laughs> yeah, it's like murder hey man we'll, yeah, we brought you out here to investigate this murder right? <laughs> a bit convoluted in a way yeah. but uh, yeah I, I just bought the character's motivations and her actions uh, so I'm going with Hillary Swank nice I, I respect the curveball so best soundbite this was this was tough like yeah. Insomnia you know not one of Nolan's movies that's most known for like it's Sonic triggers and yeah the script you know isn't like you know uh this isn't uh you know 12 angry men here like it, it's not sure. you know too memorable but <laughs> i do love this line reading from pacino's character will will dormer uh, he says uh you don't get it do you finch you're my job you're what i'm paid to do you're about as mysterious to me as a block toilet as a block toilet is to a fucking plumber. <laughs> uh, which a I think is uh, really yeah, right. Again, yeah, letting Pacino just let the F bombs fly. That's key. I got a kick out of that. Yeah. Um, so that is my that is my best best soundbite. Maybe an unintentional humorous moment there. Right, right, um, right. Yeah, so I'm actually also going with a quote. Like you said, there's not much in terms of the the score that's memorable here like i literally tr watched it four days ago and i don't remember the score at all <laughs> um yeah so i'm going with this quote from ellie burr uh hillary swank just hearkening back to my last category yeah, you're swanking it when they're investigating that foggy rocky bank that from your best moment scene um this character francis said is this his blood and ellie burr says ketchup maybe was he eating a hot dog? Maybe I didn't pull off that reading very well, but it's it's the biggest burn in the film. Right. She like she just completely shits on this other investigator, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I I chuckled when I heard it, and I'm pretty sure it might have been the only time I chuckled in the film. So yeah, insomnia, that's my a, best sound. Bite. Not a laugh riot, as they say. Um, no, no. All right, most lasting image. I'm gonna go back to just Robin Williams, like. The wry, smug smile that he possesses yeah. through most of this film, like in the the night mute sunlight, sure, it just like gets under your skin. Like it's it, it is quite haunting. So that is my my most lasting uh, image. What's yours? Okay, so I'm going with the foggy chase scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, this was a great scene, um, mm -hmm. well executed and, and fun to watch. And, you know, you're kind of like looking through the fog the whole time trying to find uh, yeah. find what they're looking for. And so Al Pacino, like, holding his gun up is, and it's on, you know, it's on all the posters. It's in the trailer. Uh, mm -hmm. So this is my most lasting image. All right, so lastly, our final award is the... Uh what the fuck award mm -hmm. um so i'm gonna go with like a lot of just the morality entanglement between pacino and williams character 
I just it didn't really fully land for me. Like mm-hmm. I didn't really buy it. I was confused how it kind of unfolded in the script. Mm. This is definitely not doesn't have the the mind bending elements that a lot of Nolan films have. It's right. definitely one of his like most straightforward. Still though, this like entanglement, there were times where there were kind of leaps in logic and like what is really happening here. So uh-huh. that's what I kind of went with with my WTF of, of insomnia. Nice. All right, so for my what-the-fuck moment, I'm going to go with something a little nitpicky, but I I felt I needed to mention it because both Natalie and I were a little flummoxed by this. Um, The the title graphics and the opening credits are cross-dissolving on top of each other. Okay. And it it makes both words, like both whatever credit it is, very difficult to read and it just looks like shit you know it, it's a little You're like with the script supervisor was who I... yeah i mean it's just it's just a kind of a silly one and strays away right. from the wtf moment um that we usually look for here but i just thought it yeah. you know it just looked bad and that's all i have to say about that one last thing um yeah did you find it a little weird to hear robin williams saying sentences and ending with will and i just I, there were a couple mm. moments where i just i was just thinking about goodwill hunting and yeah and sorry like, that's a yeah that's and a tangent you watching goodwill hunting right uh, yeah exactly so i will say i know yeah we've been a little harsh on this film but it's definitely perhaps nolan's weakest film um, sure but i will say it it does have very like controlled seasoned filmmaking and mm-hmm. it, it does feel like a film in a way that you'd almost make it like the later stage of your career rather than the beginning, which I think is, mm. is a compliment. Um, so yeah. no, I, th- I, I've been especially harsh on it and I, I still <laughs> stand by that. I think the original is better, yeah, yeah. but yeah, this is not a horrible film. Like I, I would even, you know, recommend it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I think it, I think it is to his career. Yeah. I think it's at the bottom of his bottom tier. No one, his filmography. Let's go to, dare I say, upper tier Nolan and talk about the prestige. So Nolan, he did Batman Begins technically was released uh, the year before the prestige, but Mm -hmm. we're saving Batman Begins talk for part three. We're going to do it with the Dark Knight. Mm -hmm. Let's instead talk about the prestige here, which I think we're both super excited about. Yes. A real magician tries to invent something new. Go (laughs) Something that other magicians will scratch their heads over. I suppose you have such a trick. Yes, you do. It's the one they're going to remember me for. What happened? It was the greatest magic trick I've ever seen. This is my first time rewatching it since 2007. I originally saw this on a... Yeah. I'm jealous. On a, on a family cruise. I watch this huh. on a cruise. Wow. Something I'll never do again, by the way, after <laughs> post-COVID. Like, no one's going on... You know, I'm yeah. not going on a cruise again. <laughs> I remember, like, the main thing I remember about this film is just, like, it being extremely loud, Mm. which, on rewatch, I was getting that same sensation, but Mm. Prestige, based off the 1995 novel by Christopher Priest, Mm -hmm. it follows Robert uh, Anger, who's played by Hugh Jackman, and Alfred Borden, played by Christian Bale. They're rival stage musicians in London at the end of the 19th century. They engage in this bitter rivalry. Mm-hmm. They're obsessed with creating the best stage illusion, and mm-hmm. things unfold from there. The name, The Prestige, refers to the third part of a magic trick, the phase where the musician brings back something right. that they previously made disappear. Because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it 
back. That's why every magic trick has a third act. The hardest part. The part we call the prestige. This was released in October 2006. Randomly, one of the three 2006 movies to feature like magic and magicians right. as main characters. I, uh-huh. I don't know what was going on in 2006. Very magic. strange. Yeah. The other two were the illusionists and, and scoop. Um, uh-huh. Magic was having a moment in 2006. I, maybe like David Blaine was kind of at his peak. Mm, like sure. I do remember it being odd, like the prestige and illusionists, like both coming out at the same time Two yes. like period dramas about tortured musician magicians. Yeah. But, and I think um, unfortunately it kind of hampered both films in a way because people yeah. kind of confused them. And I mean, I no, yeah, there remember was myself. Yeah. yeah. Like, Oh, was that the Ed Norton movie? You know, that's, that's the illusionist. Which I also enjoy. I think that's a good film too, but the prestige, I think really, you know, stands yeah. way above both of those. So Sam Mendes originally wanted to do this movie as a follow-up to American Beauty, and mm-hmm. another offer came from New Marker Films on behalf of Nolan, of whom uh, the author Christopher Priest had never heard of. Priest was prepared to close the deal with Mendes until a, uh, a VHS copy of Nolan's following was delivered mm. to his house by motorcycle. Which is badass. Like, I... I want every deal in my life to be closed <laughs> by way of VHS delivery VHS. on motorcycle. Yeah. Like, Good luck. <laughs> um, short yeah. career. And anyway, Priest was impressed by this gesture and, and yeah. chose Nolan uh, to support a new filmmaker at the mm-hmm. time rather than establish one. So Prestige, like my high level thought is like, this is a highly clever, lively, entertaining movie with just the right layer of emotional drama. Like mm-hmm. it's about showmanship obsession sacrifice it's a really great blend of of the you know drama and also like the horror genre there's like fantasy elements to Mm -hmm. it like i think nolan really levels up his skills in the prestige and notably it came after batman begins the year after but i think it is and i've heard you know read other people say this it's a a big turning point in his career you know, after making Batman Begins, he sort of goes into this studio-driven, high-budget, yeah. uh, you know... Mass scale. Yeah, bigger scale, bigger audience, uh, everything. Um, but this movie is like a blend of his old filmmaking, independent style, smaller stories with that massive, um, you know, corporate sort of appeal filmmaking there's mass appeal to this for sure yeah definitely and so this film i love i absolutely love this movie (laughs) um it's one it i we're we're gonna do a top five nolan films at the end of all this after we've rewatched everything this is definitely in my top five and maybe that's partly nostalgia but also i really feel it's one of his most rewatchable films and really rewarding upon every rewatch and for the little intricacies of the script um you know, it's written written by Jonathan and Christopher Nolan, this adaptation of the of the novel. Um, I think mostly written by Jonathan and Chris Chris kind of, you know, did the finishing touches yeah. and, it's and one notably of his best scripts for sure. Yeah, I agree. He apparently Chris added back in all of this stuff with the diaries, which becomes such a huge element of this film and I think is really critical to its success and sort of its the way it's all tied together but yeah i i just think this is every every like five years or so 
um, this film will be as rewarding as the first time you saw it, I feel. And I just think on so many levels, this is an amazing film. It's also with the script, I feel like might have the least amount of gaps in narrative logic, which yeah, is yeah. kind of like a it's all tied for together. better or for worse part of, part of Nolan. Right. And I think just like his directorial style really mm. begins to take shape with, with, um, you know, the prestige and, and, you know, definitely Batman begins, which we'll get into the next episode, which count the year before. But like, for yeah. example, the setup and execution of the tricks, um, that mm-hmm. Bale and Jackman perform is just, is awesome. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's some of the best directed sequences from Nolan mm-hmm. that he's ever done. Um, I love the kind of just like the tools and machinery and apparatus used, like how mm-hmm. practical and tactile everything is. So Another, practical, which yeah. is, yeah, the practicality. Is, That's a calling just card of Nolan. He loves practical filmmaking, as we've said, and the budget was only 40, about $40 million for this film, which, yeah. you know, considering it's, it's scale is pretty mm-hmm. small. And it's also like just showing, I love it just like showing the trial and error of these, of these tricks and Mm -hmm. look like magic isn't like my bag. Like I've never been like a magic guy, but the way he shows the inner workings of these magic tricks, like is just really compelling. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's kind of the beginning of Nolan taking like these big, like kind of abstract ideas and breaking them into practical steps, like Mm -hmm. showing the viewer, like this is how these things that aren't really real, they're magic mm-hmm. and there's supernatural elements in this film, but like, this is mm-hmm. actually how they could, could go down. Yeah. Yeah. Like the debut of like the transported man trick and things mm-hmm. like that. It like really, there is like this really cool sense of realism in a lot of yeah. like, the tricks that they do. And it, it definitely grounded. It, it, it just like helps enhance the drama. Cause it does feel yes. like just grounded in, in practicality. So what you're talking about is it, it's sort of uh, the ultimate metaphor for Chris Nolan as a filmmaker. I feel like he he wants to trick the audience, but in a practical sort of tangible way. And that's what this whole movie is about. It's about one, you know, the the Angier, uh, Robert Angier, played by a Hugh Jackman character, uh, is this sort of comes from money, is a an American kind of a mysterious background where his money came from going up against Christian Bale's character, Alfred Borden, um, who is more of this practical, probably more of a talented magician and, and maybe less, maybe less of a showman in a way, but it's a, it's a great metaphor for uh, Nolan's filmmaking style as a whole that he just wants to play with the audience. This, this whole film is a magic trick this is a yes it's a magic trick to the audience and so much of the structure of it is is focused around that sort of and it it even you know it's non-linear storytelling is obviously the the staple of of nolan um we've talked about a lot already but in this film it's it's sort of turned on its head because he gives the audience all the answers in the first act and (laughs) <laughs> but you're not you're not looking for the answers yet right and right, it, right. that's why it's so rewarding upon rewatch rewatches um all these little moments where you're like oh my god like yeah. he he told us in the very first line of the film like are you watching closely it's it's right, all right, right, there right. and <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's just the filmmaker here is a magician giving us information in the same structure as a magic trick are you watching closely? Absolutely. I, I think 
to you mentioned the law the non-linear structure of this like mm-hmm. it wouldn't be a nolan film without an extraordinary number of jump cuts mm-hmm. rob can you guess the number of jump cuts in the prestige because i have the number jump cuts oh you mean crossing between timelines yeah, or, yeah just going either flashes back or skips ahead to another okay. period time period of the storyline um i don't know i will say that is handled you know it is handled in memento between the color and the black and white following there's like black frames between totally um this one is handled sort of more by voiceover and diary uh the number uh, i'll say like 150 i don't know (laughs) damn all right very close 146 wow 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 (laughs) which averages almost like one timeline jump per minute of of the movie wow um so yeah, that wow, that was that was very impressive. <laughs> so I also want to say Nolan's first period piece. It's set in mm. the Victorian era. It's really his only period piece in a way, besides Dunkirk. Like the costuming and set design is on point, like very specific detail. The editing is really sharp in this. Like, for mm. example, um, incredible. You know, there's a certain suicide that happens in this film that I just <laughs> think I just love the way it, it's cut together. Um, let, let's edited talk a by bit. edited by Lee Smith, by the way, who has mm-hmm. gone on to edit all of Nolan's films after this. Mm-hmm. Performances like it's all around a stellar. The cast is magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's two Oscar winners in Christian Bale and and Sir Michael Caine. Mm-hmm. Two Oscar nominees, Hugh Jackman and, and Scarlett Johansson, who's in this. Mm-hmm. Um, Sir Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Uh, he. This is his Cutter. second movie with Nolan after Batman uh-huh. Begins at this point in his career. Since then, you know, Caine, as we mentioned in the beginning, went into star and in every one of Nolan's films. That's eight straight. Eight straight Nolan films. Caine, Nolan. Wow. What a partnership. Uh-huh. Um, and Rebecca Hall gives a great performance as Sarah. Mm-hmm. And do you want to mention the big one? Well, let me just say one point about Kane that you're going to get a, a kick out of. Sure. I just and I just thought of this as I was prepping for this episode. How much does Michael Kane remind you of? And I forget his name, <laughs> but the tour guide that we had when we studied abroad oh in London. Oh my god, Bob Craig is his name? Bob Craig? Yeah, that, that, that sounds just right. In my mind. That sounds right. All right, yeah. all right, all right. I don't wow. know if any of our study abroad fellow study abroaders, London 2009, are listening. You you are the only ones that'll get a kick out of this, but I'm, I'm having vivid think, flashes of us in right. Bath listening to Bob just Craig both, tell us about Nicolas Cage's house. <laughs> both just very wise men beyond yeah. their years. I feel like they're like cousins. I don't know. Bob That's Craig, a, Sir Michael Caine, incredible pull. No Boom. one else knows what the fuck we're talking about, <laughs> yeah. but we're going. They just for turned it. off the pod. Yeah. Um, so, so a couple Chris, other performances. Can I yeah. can I mention them? The yeah, big yeah. ones. Go, 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 go. So the rock god David Bowie is in this film <laughs> playing Nikola yes. Tesla, um, yes. who is just sort of this, you know, such a mysterious figure in history, played by yeah. the perfect mysterious rock legend David Bowie. Yeah. Um Andy I forgot Serkis. he was in this. Like when yeah, I saw yeah. him emerge, I was like, David Bowie? Like right. it was it reminded me of Matt Damon's appearance in Interstellar. Right. Yeah, good. Just one. the way he emerges in the film, like I right. was waiting for Hugh Jackman <laughs> well, to say, "Like David Bowie," like he quite literally like in, in emerges movie. out of bolts of lightning <laughs> right. from a yeah, mysterious yeah. machine. So yeah, well Bowie? put. And then Andy Serkis plays his like assistant, sort of the gatekeeper to Nikola Tesla. Play this this character named Ali. Finish your drink. I want to show you something. I think you'll have a 
special appreciation for our work. I thought it was a secret. You're a magician. Who's going to believe you? You know, Christian Bale, who were just both, you know, he's in our, he's in our, I think, Mount Rushmore favorite actors. Like, this was the only non-Batman movie that Bale made with Nolan. He's mm. excellent as always. Um, ha- kind of like Pacino, like, this is a little bit of an understated performance, but has at least mm. one emotional outburst. I mm. think particularly the the scene towards the end where mm. Jackman is visiting him from jail, Bale screaming as as Jackman's character like calmly walks away with his daughter. Just this, like mm. really powerful stuff. Come on, I love you. Come on, I love you, Jess. Ain't you? Ain't you? Well, you think this place can hold me? Ain't you? They're gonna bloody hang me. They're gonna bloody hang me. You can put a stop to this now. He's also a character in in the Prestige where it's like. I found myself unsure, like, should I be rooting for this guy? Like, is he a scumbag? Is mm. he a hero? And it does it does flip in a lot of ways. Uh, Hugh Jackman, I also want to say, like, Josh Hartnett almost played this part. Like, really? Like, Josh Hartnett? Like, I, I don't know. That, mm. I think it kind of worked I out for the see best. That. Like, yeah. Jackman is just the... And I think a, a scene of Jackman's that I really like, where he bows, like, hiding underneath the stage to soak in the crowd's applause, and then you contrast that later in the film where he's... Yeah, great. It, it, where he has the uh, the scene of him like then up on the balcony and he's he's you know overlooking the audience. I feel like that kind of like corrupts his ego and like sure. leads to his his well. ultimate downfall. You mentioned Scarlett Johansson. She also starred in one of the other three magic films of this year with Hugh Jackman huh. and Woody Allen's Scoop. Huh. I've never seen that. Weird. Yeah. I don't know. Weird coincidence. Um, they they really got their magic on it in two thousand six, but yeah. um. Well, and all right. Well, I want to get in before we do the the categories here. Some of the bonus features on the Blu-ray really Ooh, dive bonus into features. Yeah, the Wally Pfister collaboration. Uh, you know, cinematographer for Nolan's first seven films after following the way they shot this with like this really roaming handheld camera with kind of very little structure to the blocking in advance, and they they really allowed the freedom for these actors to show up on set and like figure out what works for them and the characters. Uh, I think that's a huge element to this film. And there are a few certain scenes, like especially in the first act when they're all behind the stage, like analyzing their performances and how to make their showmanship better where this, it's just like really dynamic. So yeah, that's, I just wanted to mention that. And also this is one criticism of this film has sort of been uh, the score, how it's kind of, unfitting up to the the level of this film like maybe it could have been a little better this is his last collaboration with david julian going forward he works nolan works with you know Hans zimmer very famously so it's notable to say this is this was their last collaboration uh college friends um, they never spoke again no i'm sure not but uh yeah it's it, one yeah, yeah. one small criticism of the film has been the the score i've seen yeah Let's get into the awards. I, I think first, just like the twist in this movie at the end, like this is definitely one of Nolan's best twits. I mean, twists. which like, one? I, <laughs> there's well, like 10. Right. <laughs> I know, I know. But like I basically leading up to the, you know, and this is spoilers, of course, you know. You yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to. At this point, if you're listening to us talk it. about the prestige, like, you know. But watch it again. It, but you, you should, even if you've seen it and. I highly recommend watching it again. I got like borderline like chills, like seeing how he, how Nolan pulled this off. Like it's a very um, eerie scene, how it starts with like preparing to like hang Bale's character. It's Mm. staged in a way 
where it's like almost like another magic trick, mm. but like, no, this is actual an actual hanging right, and just right. like their crescendo buildup of the strings in the score, cutting out to complete silence, then Bale's last words of just abracadabra. Into his body, dropping as he hangs, cut to the ball, bouncing to Jackman in the gunshot, just like masterfully done. Yes. One of the most impressive sequences of Nolan's career. And just like the ultimate twist is then told via flashback that there's been this twin brother involved right. in Gordon's career. You're right. And they show the insane lengths that the two go to preserve that illusion, like cutting the brother's fingers off to match the injury that he suffered during the failed bullet catch. There's a lot of foreshadowing, like as, as we've kind of alluded to, you see Bale's brother like in a big beard hiding in plain sight. Like it, yeah. it is following a, a trick that Nolan plays on the viewer here. Yeah. And like earlier in the movie, um, I think Rebecca Hall's nephew like asks uh, of the of the bird and one of the tricks like where's his brother mm-hmm. like that that's like foreshadowing right, to like right, right. twin brothers and like good good catch yeah you know there's just like all these little like Easter eggs leading so up many to it. yeah um, also shout out to our guy Tom York in the end credits yeah uh, his song analyze in part one we uh-huh. mentioned how Nolan wanted to use paranoid android by Radiohead as the end credit song to Memento. Mm-hmm. Here he kind of compromised a bit. Like I need at least one Radiohead member, and he got he got Tom York. So we'll take it. We we were very both very high on the prestige, as you can tell. Our yeah, even it's at the end of the pod, our energy level is flying. Um, let's give out some awards though. Yeah. Um, your your best moment of the prestige. Okay, so this is tough because there's so many interesting yeah. reveals and what have you. Um, I'm gonna go with the moment that was the best moment the first time I saw it. And that's the reveal in the third act of the film that Borden's twin also cut off his fingers. Yeah. That, to me, was the moment where everything kind of started to unravel in my head. And right, I, right, I was right. like, oh, my God. this <laughs> There's two of them. Yeah. I'm an idiot. I should have seen this. Um, obviously, I see it Hell on funny. upon rewatches. But the first time I saw that moment where we see him very gruesomely cutting off we don't actually see it but it just the thought of it is pretty gruesome um that's my best moment and then yeah just just the entire third act honestly <laughs> the entire movie yeah. best moment. <laughs> um mine is it's the abracadabra cut specifically nice. like i love that he brought you know abracadabra is kind of like the mm-hmm. tro- ultimate trope of magic but like i just thought it was so well done and i love that he injected that in mm-hmm and and just the cut the editing in that sequence is so so good. Yeah. So that is my best moment. Nice. Uh best performance for me, it's a tie between Bale, Michael Caine and Hugh Jackman's extremely intoxicated like double. Okay. Uh, Rudy <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah. Um so kind of a three-way tie before there. I mean, I guess I guess I got to go with I'm a Bale stan, you mm-hmm. know, as they say, so probably go with him, but I mean, everyone is 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 really good in this movie. Yeah, I mean, Christian Bale's performance is really great in the film. Um, He plays two versions of the same character, Alfred Borden and the twin Fallon. But also, even beyond that, the the two twins play each other throughout the film. And he's playing... Bale has the the task of playing this very subtle character differences between the two brothers. Because, as you learn in the film, they actually share their lives completely completely. And at one day it could be one brother with Rebecca Hall, their wife, Sarah, 
or it could be the actual one that fell in love with her. That's very subtle and crazy to think about that performance. But I'm actually going to go with Hugh Jackman as as Robert Angier and and as you mentioned Gerald Root his drunk double. The uh that performance is so funny, incredible. So Mr. Angier, I'd like you to meet Gerald Root. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A pleasure. Pleasure to meet you, fine gentlemen. Would you like for me to tell you a little joke? Come here. Hugh Jackman has just so much to do in this film, I feel like, and so much of it is is kind of seen through his eyes. You know, the great Danton, his showmanship on stage, very fitting to Hugh Jackman, who comes from a theater background, a bit of an overactor at time at times for me in his career. Sure, sure. You know, theatrical nature of his performances, but it works in this film. Um, and then he also has the Lord Caldlow uh character toward the end like everybody's playing multiple roles in this film but i just think um jackman has some of the best close-ups like very emotional tears welling in his eyes moment and moments in this film so i'm I'm going with jackman best soundbite i'm going with the crackling electricity from the tesla machine that's my Uh, runner up (laughs) okay yeah yeah Which, again, going back to how loud this movie is, strangely, like, I think that's what I remember when I said when I first saw this on a damn cruise ship, like, I was like, God, that movie was loud. It is the crackling electricity that is used several times throughout the film. Yeah. Um, That is, the sound design on that is remarkable, and that is my my best soundbite. So I'm going to go with the first line of the film from Borden, Christian Bale's character. Mm. It's right after the title card. We see a bunch of top hats on these pine needles out in the woods. Very mysterious. Oh, yeah. Great use of top hats in this. In yeah. This yeah. Yeah. You're like, what is this? The prestige top hats in a in the woods. And then. Are you watching closely? And it's it just sets up that. That's what this yeah. movie's about. It's it's a trick. Mm. The whole thing yeah. <laughs> is unraveling in front of your eyes and you have yeah. to figure it out. And. You know, he tells you very slyly in in the very first moment of the film, kind of look out for this mis- misdirection, the secrets, the reveals, the obsessiveness of the the script, the exhilaration of the performance. Like there's, it's just, it puts you in the mode and you're about to watch something that's very masterfully done. Most lasting image, there's a lot of indelible imagery in the prestige, but no doubt, I think I'm going with, the drowning in the water tank, which is seen multiple times in the film, but just like that image of subject drowning in the water tank, the repeated like cracks on the glass as the subject slowly drowns. Like it's just very striking and haunting imagery, like the lighting in that scene and just the, the visual of being kind of trapped in this glass box after a botched, you know, magic trick gone wrong that is my uh, most lasting image. So we, <laughs> you can see in my Zoom <laughs> virtual background that we are in lockstep here. Um, yes. I'm also going with this imagery. It is recurring. Um, you know, we see we see Hugh Jackman in very early on in this, and it, you're trying to figure out like, oh, he dies. Like, what's what's going on there? And but then this this character of uh, Julia played by Piper Parabo, um, who's Angier's wife at the time, drowns in this locked water tank. 
was it the Langford double or the Slipknot? You know, um, we'll never know. Yeah. One half of me swearing blind that I tied a simple Slipknot. The other half convinced that I tied the Langford double. I can never know for sure. How can he not know? How can he not know? You know, this movie is PG-13, but it is like maybe the darkest of... Of yeah, Nolan's there movies. are moments of of horror in this. The yeah. uh, the bird when the bird the birds, trick gone yeah, wrong yeah. and that like the blood oh, splattering yeah. like that's kind of a horror element. So yeah, well, it's and, funny and, though. Yeah, that we we both uh, honed in on. It that is kind of funny because there are some other answers like the light bulbs, the Tesla light bulbs stuck in the snow. That's kind of like the iconic image, but to me, right, right, not right, as right. memorable. The birds in the cage, David Bowie as Tesla emerging from the Just bolts Bowie. of lightning. Yeah, like. <laughs> the the, the yeah, top yeah. hats in the woods but yeah we both went right, with right, the, right, the right, right. drowning human beings in water tanks <laughs> so last award and we'll wrap up here uh the wtf award my choice is a bit is a bit practical it's at the end hugh jackman delivering a complete like clear spoken monologue after being shot point blank directly in the chest mm. i would say uh is is you know a bit of a leap and it's just the fact that he is hit directly and it's a trope again of like oh your last breaths you like reveal like all this <laughs> stuff but i just feel yeah. like you know you're probably you're probably going before <laughs> that i don't know it just like it in you know like bale is like just giving him the lowdown on like this is everything and he's able to like cogently understand what's going on so um, sure that is my that is my pick for wtf that's a great that's a great choice and your rationale is sound but i would say right. There is uh there is sort of a thought of what version of Angier are we even seeing at that it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a sure, copy. Sure. It's the the Star Trek paradox of the the transporter. Who are we actually seeing if if they're duplicated each time and the original Angier is drowned each time and then the the prestige Angier on top of the stage is standing there. It's all right, I'm I'm going a little too overboard here. Um <laughs> So what's, I'm actually, what's your, what's your... <laughs> right. Uh, it's similar though. I'm going with the moment when we see the full scene of Angier trying the Tesla machine out for the first time. Mm-hmm. And he has the gun. We see earlier in the film that he puts a gun there just in case. And I was, he says something like in the, in the voiceover, just in case I didn't know what would come out the other side. And I was, I was like, oh, is this going to be like a, something out of the fly? You know, like, is it going to be like some monster or something? Yeah. But then that scene when we, we realize that it's just a copy of this, like, humanoid flesh, but really, like, has his consciousness, which is, yeah. I mean, we can go deep into that. But um, it's, it's that moment when he shoots himself because he realizes there can't be two of him. I'm just like, oh my god. So, bottom line, I think Prestige like is his most underrated film and yeah. one of Nolan's best. Um, that's going to be a wrap on part two of the Chris Nolan Chronicles. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Reminder to please rate, review, and share this podcast, particularly any of the uh, Chris Nolan movie you know movie fans in your life. We'd yeah, really please. appreciate it. And in part three, our next episode... It's time to visit Gotham, Rob. Yes. We'll be dissecting Batman Begins and The Dark Knight and also just talk about how Nolan redefined the summer blockbuster for the 20th century and more. Yeah, so watch along with us if you can. 
And in the words of Nikola Tesla, David Bowie as Nikola Tesla in The Prestige. Society only tolerates one change at a time. <laughs>